Today, one in three Americans are suffering from health effects of obesity and diabetes due to poor nutrition. This is why Real Good Foods is on a mission to improve the lives of millions through nutritious foods that are high in protein, low in carbs, and made from real food ingredients. So being very candid with y'all, I definitely associated frozen food with being, frankly, either kind of gross and or just not healthy for me. And so when I got the chance to try Real Good Foods, I was honestly very surprised and pretty delighted by how easy and tasty it was and how good it made me feel because it's made out of real food ingredients. So you can visit realgoodfoods.com and at Real Good Foods on social. You can get $15 off a minimum $15 purchase by using the promo code PLUCKUP15. The link is in our show notes. And stay tuned for my review later in the episode. You're listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders about their pluck-ups. Our guests share their sometimes never-before-told mistakes, rejections, wrong turns in the more difficult seasons of their lives and careers. But they also share with us how they moved on and up and through to keep creating and inspiring others to build lives of purpose, passion, and impact. I'm your lucky and plucky host, Liz Bohannon. Truly, honestly, and listen, I don't care that maybe I've said this about other episodes. Let me live my life, people. This conversation with our next guest is one of my all-time favorites. Eve Rodsky, a Harvard grad lawyer, activist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book and the Reese Witherspoon book club pick, Fair Play, is on the show. Just get ready, you guys. I mean, Eve and I, we cover a lot of ground in this episode. She shares about her childhood, how she was raised by a single mother and a KFC dad. You know, it's kind of like a cheaper version of the Disney World dad that just pops in now and then with Disney World tickets or, you know, in her case, (laughs) a bucket of yummy fried chicken. This absence of her father really led Eve to assume this role as a partner to her mother and take on a lot of responsibility for a kiddo. She went on to do great things, you know, Harvard, lawyer, all the things. But then we really dive in and talk about this breakdown in her marriage that was instigated by a particular text about blueberries. You guys are just going to have to listen to the show because, listen, I have quoted this line and I have told this story about this blueberry text like six times since I had Eve on the show. It's so good. But it's obviously not just about blueberries. She shares about the season of life where she really spiraled into losing her identity. She struggled with her mental health. But all of this eventually led her to making some really big decisions that changed the course of her life, of her marriage. But not just hers, also the lives of thousands and thousands of others who are struggling with the very same things in their lives, their vocations, and in their relationships. Listen, I laughed so hard with Eve. I laughed until I cried multiple times. But this episode is also, it is a must listen because the content of this episode is about really how our society is kind of built on the back of this invisible and unpaid labor, mainly, typically, that women bear the burden of at home. 
and how it's not an us first them thing that everyone in a partnership and society wins when we communicate open and honestly about the seen and unseen labor that truly runs our world. So anyway, buckle up. This is a fun ride, lots of laughs, but lots of really good things to think about as well. I can't wait for you to get to know Eve. We're recording here, so we should be good to go. Yes, I was saying I love the podcast. Um, I love the vulnerability you bring. So I'm really happy to be here. Yay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I'm so looking forward to getting to know you a little bit more. So for those of our listeners who don't know you yet, can you give us just like the one minute who you are, what you do today, and then we're going to rewind a little bit. I love it. My name is Eve Rodsky. I'm the author of the New York Times bestseller, Fair Play. Um, and what I do is um, I am an author and an activist around the issue of women's unpaid labor. So I'm looking at the fact that we build societies. Every society has been built on the backs of the unpaid labor of women. And I think we're going through a reckoning now to say no more. Um, so I encourage you and inspire you to take agency in your own life for more fairness, but I also fight for systemic solutions around these issues as well. Ooh, that's good. That one, two punch of like, what can you do in your own life practically today, tangibly? Also, what are the systems that we've built that are enabling this and how do we dismantle and rebuild those? Woo, that's good stuff. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about, take us as far back in the Eve Rodsky story as you're willing to go. We'd specifically love to hear a little bit about your childhood. Like, how did you grow up? What were the things that happened or parts of who you were as a kid that maybe you can see in the work that you're doing today? Oh, it's such a great question. Um, and again, I love how deep, how you thread very deep, as um, <laughs> my friend who's a conversation designer would call it, threading. Wait, so I hold on that. just a minute. <laughs> Did you just say you have a friend who's a conversation designer? Yes, you have to have him on your podcast. His name is Daniel Stillman. He designs conversations for Fortune 500 companies, and he would call that threading. So he says, you know, most conversations end up in very superficial threading. You know, how was your day? How's the weather? And I like to thread deeper automatically. And it sounds like you do too. Oh, yes. I just never Um, had the language for it before. I am like... You're a deep threader. (laughs) Okay. But I am just so in love with the fact that there is a job that exists out there to design conversations. And I'm going to add that to my growing list of dream jobs. That's wild. And read, I will say to everybody, that's a book I always recommend reading. Um, His book is called Good Talk. It's just a great book about how to design healthy conversations. Oh my Uh, And he's taught me... He's taught me a lot. So I will say we're both deep threaders. We're here with the expectation we're going to thread deep. Uh So it's very exciting to be able to do that with someone who's willing to listen. But yes, um, for me, a lot of the work is informed by my childhood. Um, I will fast forward a minute to say that I write about in Fair Play that this, um, all research I think is me search. Mm. Uh, That's what researchers say. And for me, the, the me search was around... Um, my own breakdown in my marriage hmm. around uh, invisible work. It started with a text. My husband Seth sent me that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And you can't make this shit up, Liz. You know, you can't make it up. But that day on the side of the road, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. It's changed my life. It literally wow. changed the trajectory of my life because I was sitting there sobbing mm-hmm. after my second son was born, uh, thinking my marriage was going to collapse over being the fulfiller of my husband's smoothie needs. 
And it felt very cliche at the time, right? Because it was obviously the straw that broke the camel's back, but yeah. a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was overwhelmed, as many women feel right now, especially in COVID, with, um, I was drowning in trying to maintain a career and raise my kids almost yeah. single-handedly. And I call that the she fault, um, mm. the default for literally every single household and domestic tasks and the realization that I did not have the career marriage combo I thought I was going to have. And mm. the reason why I say that first is because that re- rewinds to my childhood where, okay. Liz, this should not have happened to me. And I'll tell you why, because of my childhood. So when I grew up, I grew up in a single mother household. And by single mother, I don't, I, my father was involved tangentially. He did have custody. He would sometimes take us to Kentucky Fried Chicken on 14th Street and 2nd Avenue um, when his schedule allowed. But my mother was a, I've heard the phrase <laughs> Disney World dad before. You know, they show up once a year and take their kids to Disney World and you had the Kentucky KFC Fried Chicken dad. dad. Yeah. <laughs> I had a KFC dad for yeah. sure. And then he would get mad if there was any white meat. We had to, I had to go up as a child and demand um, all dark meat for our, our, our bucket. But yeah, so anyway, that'll be for a different podcast. But so I had a KFC dad and my mother did everything for our family. And um, she was also the primary breadwinner for our family because I like to say she sort of traded alimony for acrimony or mm. vice versa, acrimony for alimony. She just didn't want to deal with it. Yeah. Um, she didn't want to deal with the fighting and she wanted us to have a good relationship with our dad. Mm. So she was the primary breadwinner. She was a social worker. And uh, we lived in Avenue C and 14th Street in Stuyvesant Town, which is now incredibly gentrified. But back then it was our community, but it was not an easy place to grow up. My mother had to lie. A lot of women, black women, especially, they end up, you know, going to jail for these issues. We had the white privilege. My mother never got in trouble, but she did lie about um, our address. She gave us the name of a friend so we could go to a better public school. Mm. And I remember that was really hard growing up, making sure you weren't going to be discovered and kicked out of your school. Yeah. So we grew up, I grew up with a disabled brother, um, a younger brother who turns out to be autistic, but we didn't know that growing up because he sort of fell through the cracks. And I'm what psychologists call a parental child. So I became my mother's partner where I vowed it would never happen to me because I watched what it felt like to see one woman do it all. And a lot of that included helping her with eviction notices. So setting reminders in her calendar. To, uh, we had this calendar on the wall. It was always like the UNICEF calendar or the, you know, the free calendar you got in the yeah, mail from yeah. Greenpeace. Yeah. Um, we, and I would circle when rent was due wow. um, to make sure that she would pay it. And then ultimately, I put my brother to bed at night, many nights, because um, she was trying to get tenure as a professor of social work. And they gave her the night classes. So she had to teach from seven to nine. And that's when we were going to bed. So that made me very clear about invisible work very early on. And I always, always vowed I would have an equal partner in life, Liz. And I did. I married that equal partner. We were... Equally ordering takeout. Well, first of all, first of all, really quick before we go on to that, one of the things that I just want to call out that I love about your story is that so often, you know, we think about building a life of purpose and passion and impact is out of seeing something that you want, like having a vision for the positive. 
But I also think that there is so much value in reality to how sometimes it shakes out of it's actually a reaction to a negative or an absence of something like having saying like, I never want to see that happen to me. I experience this and I don't want other people to experience this. I am avoiding this thing and I'm going to build a proactive purpose around a negative versus being like drawn to a positive. Those are they're two different journeys. I don't think one is better than the other, but they're both ways in which we can really like experience a deep sense of calling. I love that so much. I've never really thought about it that way. So again, that's why I love your podcast because you have a lot of important insights for your guests. And I think that's absolutely right. My entire life is a reaction to things that I didn't want to see for myself. Mm. And then now it's become a reaction to things I don't want to see for other women. Yeah. And often I call myself the ghost of Christmas future <laughs> because I want my, my entire purpose for the rest of my life is to make sure that things are better for women that come behind me. I love that. Really quick side story because your ghost <laughs> comment when I was in college, I kid you not, I have a similar, uh, I would say there's there's some shared similarities with my experience growing up and a negative reaction to relationships and women in relationships and what women should demand out of their partners as far as like respect, dignity, whatever. And in college, I kid you not, I will never forget this. At one point, I heard a guy call me. He called me the angel of death for relationships. <laughs> and the point was like, if your girlfriend hangs out with Liz, there's like a 50% chance she's going to dump you when she gets back. So like, keep your girlfriend away from Liz. And at first I was really offended. And now I kind of take pride in that. And I was like, oh my you God, only have it. to be worried if you're a douchebag. If you're a great guy, you don't have to be worried. But yes, if you are a douchebag and your girlfriend hangs out with me, she might dump you when we get done. So <laughs> but uh, I love that so much. I love it so much because re- the angel of death, it, it's such a perfect way to put it because to me, that's all about rebirth and you want people, you need those spiritual friends to wake you up. So thank you for doing that for women for a long time. <laughs> uh, you're welcome. And my apologies to the men. No. Okay. So tell us, so it sounds like you were like, okay, I have this awareness. I am going to make sure this never happens to me. And there was a point in your life and your marriage where you were like, I'm doing the thing. I am avoiding the thing. So tell us about that. Like what, what was your first belief set when you entered into that relationship that was like, yes, this is in line with what I said I want out of my life. Well, it's so interesting how these things sort of creep up on you. And um, I think what I realized was an interesting part of my research area around invisible work, unpaid labor in the home is that it sneaks up on you because We have so much conditioning and assumptions that are also living with us, Mm. not just our partner. And so I'd say Mm -hmm. I had like six people in our relationship and I had to like exercise those demons for myself before Mm. I could actually demand fairness and what I wanted. And so what I mean by that is as much as I demanded fairness and I thought I was marrying a feminist in our ketubah because I'm a Jew. And so we have this thing called a ketubah, which is a marriage contract that's written in in Hebrew, we designed wow. an equal, we designed an equal ketubah that, um, cause often it could be very gendered. And like I said, we mm. were ordering each ordering takeout and we were each doing the laundry and we were sort of helping each other as partner coaches and mm. sort of killing it in our careers. Yeah. When Zach came along, our first son came along, mm. there became this assumption that there just wasn't that much for Seth to do. Okay. And it became an assumption that I had as well, that somehow, because I was breastfeeding this baby, it also meant that I was now 
paying our mortgage and filling out thank you notes and buying groceries and cooking all our meals. And it started to happen sort of slowly and Mm. creeped into my relationship to the point where, Liz, I woke up one day, basically that blueberries day, and I looked around and I found myself in a car with a breast pump and a diaper bag on the passenger seat of my car. Gifts for a newborn baby to return in the backseat of the car because I just had been. A client contract in my lap because I had been, I used to say opt out of the traditional workforce. Now I say I was forced out. Mm -hmm. So I had a client contract in my lap because I had started my own law firm. I had a pen in between my legs because I still mark up contracts very analog, like, um, you know, with a pen. So I remember that day I had a pen between my legs. And as I was racing to get Zach, my older son, who was three at the time, from his toddler transition program, which in America lasts like seven minutes and costs, you know, your entire right, salary. Right. The pen, as I would hit the stop sign, was just kept stabbing me in the vagina. <laughs> it was just, it kept that slipping so down good. and just stabbing me. That and so, so I remember good. thinking like, that's where I ended up. I ended up with equal relationship mm. to being completely just decimated and burnt out from my own life where I'd lost my identity. I was losing my mental health losing my career and a pen that just kept stabbing me in the vagina is a perfect metaphor. The symbolism of that is amazing. (laughs) And that was it. That was my trajectory. It was a slippery slope until one day I said, no more. Yeah, I'm not going to live like this. And so I started to really start to research and understand what was happening to me. Well, I do really quick. I want to camp out there a little bit because I think your story is really powerful in that um, the slippery slope I think is really relatable to a lot of people. I actually love that when y'all started out, there actually was true partnership. There was an ideological buy-in because I think sometimes we can exist in this world that's more like hyperbolic than how reality works out, right? Like you did the things. You had a husband who intellectually believed in equality. You had these symbols of your equal partnership. And that actually was working for both of you. And then there was this massive life shift. And that life shift introduced a new dynamic, new expectations. And that thing that used to be working slowly started slipping away. It wasn't like overnight. Your husband was like, by the way, I no longer believe that we're equal partners, which is why I think it's like so important that in any relationship, vocation, like whatever it is, community, that we kind of put these checkpoints Because it's like saying yes to something 10 years ago isn't good enough. It's like we kind of have to wake up every day and realistically not every day, but maybe let's say like once a quarter and have a check in and going, is that thing that we said we were going to do and we were committed to, are we doing it? Is it still working? Because life changes and seasons change and like lifestyle, you know, having a kid or switching to a new job or now all of a sudden you're taking care of a sick family member and the dynamics can shift. And so if we're not continually revisiting those commitments and those ideals, I think it is really easy for them to slowly drift away. And oftentimes, if we're not putting those checkpoints in place, you end up in your car getting stabbed in your (laughs) vagina with a pen. And it's all it's too it's just all of a sudden it's like the raft has drifted so far away from the origin point. And now it's like SOS, we're effed. We need to do something about it, which sounds like that's the point that you got to. Yeah, resentometer 10. You yes. know, if you read us weekly, there's the buzzometer. This was resentometer yeah. 10. You don't yeah. want to get there. And I think by the vulnerability and sharing my story for me, being, you know, because as a private citizen, this wasn't something I expected in my life to share mm-hmm. the story. 
um, was about exactly that. It was recognizing that what works for you, the vows you take on the wedding day have nothing to do with the vows over who takes out the garbage. And those vows are so much more important. Mm. Those stories are humanity. It's not about chores. This is about how you want to build your life, yeah. what your value system is. Um, and it does take day-to-day check-ins. You said day-to-day and you said maybe once a quarter. For Seth and me, we check in every single night, wow. 10 minutes a night. Okay. about the dynamic nature. And I don't mean dynamic nature, like dynamic nature. I mean the dynamic changing nature totally. of every single day with three kids under 12. Yeah, And that was, you know, obviously we got there over 10 years and I wrote a book about it, but it was exactly right. It was that my ideal life, the one I wanted to build, the one that I thought Seth was building for me mm. was slipping away. It looked mm-hmm. nothing like the lived reality that we were actually in. And I was sort of sick of people either complaining about their partners on the side and just being like, oh, this is so funny. This is what we're going to do. We're going to complain on the sidelines and continue to martyr ourselves and do it all. But I was also pissed. I was pissed at every single man I saw out there who was sitting while I saw their wives feeding their child or cutting up their food at a restaurant. I was so angry when I saw Mm. any couple sort of walking by where you know, a woman was uh, breastfeeding and, and their partner was on the phone. I realized I was just angry, angry, angry. And that rage, I wanted to channel it into something more productive. I love that. I love the redemption of rage, I think, is a <laughs> remarkably powerful tool. I think we're so conditioned, like in our culture, we have negative emotions and positive emotions. And we have very clearly labeled anger as negative. And anger, to be true, can be very destructive externally and internally. But instead of labeling it negative and trying to say, like, calm down, don't be angry, instead saying, like, okay, maybe this anger is a signal to me. And if maybe there's a positive and redemptive way that I can channel this into co-creating something that's actually better and not just, like, sitting in the anger, but really using the anger as a fuel to create something better. So I'm curious, like take us back to the, I am i can't, this will stick with me f- maybe for forever. The line, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. It's so good. It's so powerful. It's so potent <laughs> because you just say that and every single person, my guess is listening to that goes, they know what that means and their body has like a <laughs> visceral reaction to I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. Will you walk us through when you're still in that moment of like, overwhelm, dismay, the life I said I wanted, This I, I don't have it and I'm drowning. Like, What was your first reaction and kind of first step in that? Such a good question because I never get to really break it down that early. And I will say that that early part of my journey, I think the entering of consciousness in that moment was something in hindsight that you, know, you, don't, you think you're just in a rage. You think you may be reacting or in a way that's not rational, but it was... Something about having that day in my life of that reckoning and realization. But this is the thing. I didn't come to Seth. This is the irony. I'm a Harvard-trained mediator, Liz, right? I'm trained to use my voice. My day job is I work for families that look like the HBO show Succession. And your listeners should feel bad for me because it's really hard work. I saw one episode of the show and I was too triggered, so I stopped watching it. But what I do for those families is I bring grace and humor and generosity through governance, through structures, through organizational systems, um, when they're making the most complex decisions. Yeah. So I know how to communicate about difficult topics. Yeah. This is what I'm trained to do. And still in my own marriage, mm-hmm. I did not bring it up. Mm-hmm. I cried to myself in the car. Mm. I was still raging passive aggressively. 
And and all I started to do was watch. Yeah. So mm. what was happening to me in that moment was what happened right around that time is indicative of what I started to watch. I started to watch dynamics in public between couples. And I also started to watch my friends. And so what happened to me, fortunately, was another bad text day, I guess. But it was a day right after the blueberries text, you know, around the same time where I got to go on a breast cancer march with nine women that were like you, you know, very empowered to use their voice, very self-actualized women who were heads of nonprofits. I had an Oscar-winning producer with us at this breast cancer march because our friend had been diagnosed. She invited us to this fundraiser. We had this beautiful morning. We were all covered in pink. I remember Mm -hmm. this morning really well in downtown LA. I had like glitter on my, probably on my body (laughs) um, as well. But what I noticed, noticing, which there's power noticing, because I was in consciousness, I wasn't in the fight for solutions yet, was what happened at noon, where I say we sort of became the reverse Cinderella. We all turned into pumpkins. Because these women who are powerful in every other area of their lives started to get texts and phone calls, mm. and including me, with things like, when is the babysitter coming, right? These these partners who are already done because it was noon on a Saturday and they were done watching babysitting their kids. I had a friend whose partner asked, you know, where's Hudson's soccer bag? What's the address of the birthday party? Where is the gift that you're supposed to give me? Um, my favorite was my friend Kate's husband who texted, um, do the kids need to eat lunch? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that oh, one was really great. Oh, sweet um, Kate. Sweet Kate. Poor Kate. Poor Kate. Um, they're doing good now. They've, they've both read Fair Play. And actually, <laughs> I will say, I, I, I love Kate's partner. So thank you, Kate. But it was, it was their reaction that was so painful to me, mm. Liz, because it wasn't like all those women were, you know, oh my God, these, you know, let's turn off our phones. Let's go to lunch. It was that they all, every one of those women said to me, we left our partner with too much to do and we can't go to lunch. Wow. And it was the collective realization that these powerful women left me. They left me to go Mm. find Hudson soccer bag, to bring a perfectly wrapped gift to a birthday party and to feed their kids lunch. And I think to this day, I still find so much pain in that moment. Yeah. And what I asked for them to do for me was count up how many phone calls and texts they had received. And we had received a collective of 30 phone calls and 46 texts for 10 women over 30 minutes. Wow. You asked me about the moment. The moment was a great consciousness raising time in my life Mm -hmm. where I just started to watch and feel so much pain Mm. because this work is very triggering. You know, it is triggering work. I don't think I realized how triggering it is. It's sort of, I'm the the angel of death with you. (laughs) The angel of death for relationships or the ghost of Christmas future or calling out what we've been conditioned to believe in a capitalist patriarchal society is it's hard work. Hard work to recognize that we don't have permission to be unavailable, that our time is not valued, that guilt and shame is a tool to keep women from being self-actualized. All these things I learned over 10 years that took me on a journey started with those, just those small moments, Liz, of realization, of of consciousness. I also love that that moment for you happened in the midst of such powerful, self-actualized women. (laughs) Like my closest relationship with someone who has been in a psychologically abusive relationship is one of the like strongest, most actualized, 
women in my life, like a friend who pushes me, who challenges me, who she's so strong. And I consider it such a gift to hold that because it has completely changed my beliefs and assumptions about, you know, I think it's so easy to be like, well, that only happens to you if you're this, this or this, you know, if you're like weak or you've been, you know, you've you've had an abusive childhood and like, there's all of these like indicators or beliefs that we have. And I, even my friend, she had that confusion herself. Like she didn't allow herself to acknowledge that she was in an abusive relationship because she was also holding a true version of who she's like, that can't happen to a woman like me. Those two things can't go together. I cannot be this strong, independent, vocal woman and be in this psychologically abusive relationship. So one of these must be false and it's easier to choose it's false that I'm in an abusive relationship, then it's false that I'm a strong woman. And obviously we're talking about a different degree with your friends, but it's the same concept that it's like so often we think these things have to go together. And it's like, no, you have a group of really powerful, self-actualized, vocal female friends, and they are in marriages and partnerships and exist in a society that is set up to create this dynamic. Both of those things can be true. And I think that that's such an important part of that season of just consciousness, of paying attention to those things, that those are yes and things that can go together. Well, I love that you say that too, that there's the both and. It's important to recognize it can be a both and as opposed to an either or. And it was a both and. And ironically, I never actually told this story but to anybody, but as I was shopping for book agents um, or interviewing people as I thought about turning this system that was working for um, all these beta testers around me into a book after Trump was elected. And I felt like I wanted to tackle unpaid labor mm. more openly. Yeah, um, I did sit with um, a lot of agents and uh, some got it and some didn't. One asked me, why would you even be talking about this issue when women are more in the labor force than men? Um, isn't this an issue from the 90s? And I said, well, it's just going to take one crisis for women to exit the labor force. Um, wow. Hence a year later. Yeah, wow. Um, but one agent, so I was almost about to sign on the dotted line with one agent. And then we had this great lunch in New York. And then right as we left, she had this passing line where she said, you know, this would never happen to me. Wow. She said, you know, this would never happen to me. You know, I'm just too strong and dynamic and I care too much about my career. So, you know, I just wonder about all these women, you know, we're selling to like, how did this happen? Because it would never happen to me. And it gets to what you said. So I ended up going with a different agent Hmm. um, only because I wanted someone who understood the lived experience of what was happening to me, somebody who was. uh, So I went with an amazing agent who has three kids who uh, was in it as much as I was. Um, Yeah. So it was a very interesting dynamic, but it was exactly like you said. Ugh, that it was response this idea. just like guts me because what it does is it, um, and that's fine if she has never experienced that. And frankly, I will say like, I am in a relationship with a partner, like this is not an issue in our marriage. However, I feel like by leaning into like, that hasn't happened to me, therefore that couldn't happen to me. It is so shaming and disvalidating and also it pushes off any responsibility for like, is this my life specifically? Actually, no. It's like if it hasn't affected them negatively, there's a disvalidation of like, well, it hasn't happened to me and I don't think it could happen to me. And so therefore, like, mm, I don't know if this is like quite necessary. And that 
it's just such a bummer to me that it's just like not every reality has to be your lived reality for it to be really true and frankly like you might unknowingly be perpetuating that in ways that are harming other people and just because you haven't experienced that harm doesn't mean that you don't have a role in actually making it right and making it better Okay, so listen, I just tried the green enchiladas from Real Good Foods because when they approached us to sponsor the show, I was going to try it first because y'all know I'm not going to share something with you that I don't actually believe in. So I tried these enchiladas and people, I was pretty surprised. First of all, to be honest, I do not buy frozen meals. I haven't since like I was in college because I kind of just figured they were all either a little bit gross or packed with fake foods and things that don't nourish my body. But I tried out these enchiladas. I was very delighted by how they tasted. They were super flavorful. And even the texture felt like substantial and real. Like the shredded chicken was real shredded chicken, which by the way, it is antibiotic free also. And it took me like four minutes to make. So just win, win, win. And now Real Good Foods have actually made it to my real life grocery list for times when I need something that's quick, tasty, and healthy. So thank you, Real Good Foods. To learn more, you can check out realgoodfoods.com and at realgoodfoods on social. You can get $15 off a minimum $15 purchase by using the promo code PLUCKUP15. The link is in our show notes. Let's talk about the men in the equation. I get that on the micro, a man's instinct to be like, well, this is working well for me to have my wife do everything, you know, like... I saw a tweet, I think it was like yesterday or an Instagram of someone saying, you know, I just had a man tell me that on top of my full-time job, I should be spending at least five hours a day writing. um, And that tells me everything that I need to know about his wife. And like, you know, of like now now I know exactly what his marriage is like because he's able to work full-time and spend five hours a day writing. And I feel like one of the things that I'm so passionate about in the conversation of gender equality is that it isn't this zero-sum pie where it's like, if we are asking men to step into this and to acknowledge this, it's going to be at a cost to them. I think it can feel like a cost to our more shallow selves, right? Of like, no, this is working out great. My wife takes care of everything. However, the like truest, truest version of who that man is and who he was created to be I feel like is being damaged in that narrative that it's like there is so much beauty and life and joy on the other side of equality and true partnership and more involvement in your kid's life and more responsibility at the home and a partnership that feels so mutually respectful and supportive that it's like men like it's not serving men either. I think it's easier to believe the narrative if you are benefiting on that shallow level from inequality. I mean, I think that it's like the same thing about like racism, right? Where it's like, it's easy to fall into this belief of like, oh, well, this is working out well for white people. And it's like, but it's not like you weren't created to live in a like that is damaging to the human soul to live in a worldview and belief system that you have superiority over another human like that actually isn't who you were created to be. And it's damaging to you in the long run. And I just feel like reminding people of that part of the conversation. That's like, you're not losing out by pursuing equality. Like we all win when we believe and when we build systems that treat every person with dignity and respect, that's not a cost and it's not a loss. It is like a net gain in the long run. 
I will tell you, there's not one man who is a fair play beta tester who has actually implemented the system that has said it's made his life worse. That is it's exactly so what you're awesome. saying. I mean, I and I'm talking that. about thousands. That, I mean, look, I have wow. the occasional, we broke up over these issues and that makes me, that pains me because I don't want to do harm. And I'm sorry that that consciousness brought trauma and triggering issues to that family. But if that wasn't working, that's the angel of death. Again, I, know, I was just going to say, that's your I angel think, of death moment. I think that should be our, our episode name, right? <laughs> um, uh-huh. Or the ghost of Christmas future. But exactly, like I think if you're in consciousness and you can't get to that solutions part, then yes, there's bigger issues at play. But I will say, not just speaking for my husband, who is allowed me to, with permission to write a story, a book about him. Yeah. Um, it is... His life is transformed, hmm. transformed by the role he has. Okay, will you tell us more, put more color sure. on that? Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, well, let me tell you this. I'll tell you this amazing story that is, it just, it still almost brings me to tears. It's a small story, but it, it it is of a client of mine who watched me write Fair Play, was very supportive, big Seattle executive, uh, lots of money. And the reason why I bring that up is because that's often what he is defined by. He was an early fair player, got a lot out of it. And he called me right before COVID. And this person, a friend of his did not die because of COVID. They passed away. And he said, you know, I'm calling you from a funeral. And this gets to our angel of death. That's why I had to think that's our our theme. So I'm going to go and lean into that. Um, He said, I just wanted to call you uh, because I just came, I finished this funeral and it made me want to call you. Um, um, or I just left the memorial service. And I was like, this is funny, you know, Steve, that you wanted to call me after this memorial service. And he called and said that he was at this memorial service of this man who also was very powerful executive. And nobody talked about this man's status or money. That was not mm-hmm. what the funeral was about. What my client remembered was that his three daughters came up on the podium Mm. and each one of them with no context. One came up, beautiful girl, you know, he knows her inside and out. He says that she reads a poem. This sounded like a Shel Silverstein rhyming poem, a really funny, cute poem. Then the next daughter comes up, same thing, beautiful, different, silly, funny poem. Then the third daughter comes up, another beautiful, amazing, fun poem, the audience is a little confused, but also smiling. And then the three daughters lean into the microphone of the memorial and say, those were the, our father's poems that he wrote to us as our tooth fairy. And it still I makes me like, honestly, right like, I'm still going to tear up all yeah. these, like you know, years later hearing the story. Mm. Because that was this man's humanity, right? Mm-hmm. He was being remembered for these, what Tova Klein, this child psychologist, calls the spaces in between, hmm. right? What happens, the magic when you put your child to bed or when you transport them to their extracurricular sports and they cry because their friends are being mean to them. Mm-hmm. That becomes our humanity. It becomes what we're remembered for and it becomes our legacy. And so that's why I say Fair Play became a love letter to men because mm-hmm. that legacy, those stories are what men share for all over the world with me. All over the world, what they get from being more invested in their families and being able to parent out loud. And society doesn't allow for that as well for them. So as you said earlier, Liz, the system, these gendered roles, they don't work for anybody. Being able to live in different roles, to be a self-actualized human being, to have work as part of that is to me what this revolution of COVID is going to, is hopefully going to beget. 
Oh, that is so good. I love that so much. And thinking about the spaces and the places and the humanity that men will get to reclaim when we pursue true, mutually respectful, equal systems that it's like you get to be a fuller human, too. And like, I, I love that. Oh, my gosh, that is so good. And you made me cry those poems. I know. Bless. Oh my God. I just think, I think about that family a lot. Wow. That is really, really powerful. Oh my gosh. Eve, thank you so much. (laughs) This was like, I feel like we could keep going for a long time. I'm going to end up crying on this podcast. I know, but no, this, the work that you're doing. So tell us a little bit about, I would love to know more about the um, project. Is it like a deck? What have you developed and created out of the fair play mentality, mindset, ideology to help in really practical ways of bring these into our homes and our families? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, of course. So uh, Fair Play is a book. It started off as a book. I wish it could just be a Cards Against Humanity <laughs> card game. <laughs> That's what I wanted initially, but I realized that a lot of what we, the threading we did today, Liz, yeah. the deeper threading is had to happen in the beginning part of the book. We have to look at ourselves and the yeah. systems that we grow up in. Um, but, but the fun part that we didn't get to because we were being more of a ghost of Christmas future today <laughs> is that the system works. It's a system that is, um, easy to follow. It's based on organizational management principles that have worked for 50 years in the workplace. And it's, I will just end on saying that it was really derived from a, one question that I asked in 17 countries. And that question was, how does mustard get in your refrigerator? <laughs> that was it. Because it's such a great question because condiments are popular in every country. And yeah. so if it wasn't mustard, I could just sub it in. But it got at the idea that when we say things like we both do it, we mm-hmm. both get the groceries or we both take the kids to school, right? It, it doesn't unpack and understand how to become intentional and efficient about the work that has to get done yeah. in the home that's super valuable. And you can get to who does what by asking that question? Because ultimately someone has the mustard there because their second son, Johnny, would choke on their protein if they didn't bring the mustard there. That's conception. You have it there because someone monitors that mustard because it runs low and gets stakeholder buy-in from the family for what they need for that grocery list. That They don't call it that, but that's what I yeah. see as an yeah. organizational management specialist. That's planning. And then someone has to get their butt to the store to go buy the mustard. And hopefully it's not spicy Dijon, right? It's actually yellow mustard. And that concept of keeping that conception and planning and execution together, Mm -hmm. the idea of an ownership mindset that whether when you're holding a card, a fair play card, that's my metaphor, there's a hundred of them, Mm -hmm. whether it's for an hour of watching your kids or it's your whole life of lawn and plants, you do that with full conception, planning and execution with an ownership mindset, the same way that you do at work. You never walk into your boss's office and say, hey, what should I be doing today? I'll just wait here till you tell me what to do. And we shouldn't do that in the home yes, either. Because this kind of touches back to, to make it really practical, like your original experience with those 10 very powerful women where it was like the, okay, I'll watch the kids for half of the day today, <laughs> but I haven't taken on any of the mental load to prep for what that will involve. The present, the transporting, the knowing the address to get to the birthday party. So I feel like you see this a lot where it's like, well, okay, I'll take on this thing, but you have to tell me to do it. You have to remind me to do it. And then you have to tell me how to do it. And then it's like, well, at that point, I might as well just do it. And I feel like that's what a lot of folks can do because it's like, if that, what do you call it? The conception, the... 
planning and the execution. The conception, if you are, planning, If you're in a relationship where you're holding the conception and planning and someone is a helper to you, I will do it if you just tell me what you need. Yeah. That is not a way to live. Yeah. Because what that leads is to systemic burnout. And if you, especially if you bring caregiving responsibilities in the sandwich generation on top of it, whether it's for your parents, in-laws, friends, kids, it becomes um, unsustainable. Yeah. It becomes unsustainable. And so that's why the idea of being able to transfer. So the, the number one thing men told me that they hated about home life in heterosis gender relationships, Liz, was that they couldn't get anything right, mm. that they didn't know their role. And the number one thing women told me they hated about home life in those same relationships was that they can't shut their mind off. Okay. Yeah. So how do you get to a place where you have context and not control? We do that in the workplace all the time. We call that the directly responsible individual, the ownership mindset. It's easier said than done. It's like saying, you know, go in the Atkins diet and don't eat sugar. But once you can get to that place, and that's why the book helps to unpack all of the barriers in your way to getting to the system. But once you're living in that system, as Seth and I are now, we are not recognizable to ourselves. Mm -hmm. We don't remember those people who were the blueberries people. I mean, we don't remember pre-consciousness because mm -hmm. this has become such a big part of our lives and our advocacy work about the power of the humanity in what so many people dismiss as chores. Yeah. This is yes, our humanity. Yes, yes. Where it's like, this isn't just something that has to get done. There's actually beauty in service and in the small things. Do you think, and I'm saying this being, um, I'll be pretty vulnerable and say that I feel like, honestly, I, in our partnership, I actually tend to be the one that can be a little bit less of a planner, a little bit more flighty, a little bit like my, my general posture on a lot of home life things is like, it'll be fine. Like, you know, if the kids are safe and they're taken care of and like, if they're psychologically safe, everything else is fine. Um, so I do wonder, and I see this probably more so, so less for me and maybe more so for my friends, because I think that I, I see that a lot, the sense that the husbands feel really disempowered because it's like, well, even when I try, it's not right. And I just feel critiqued. So I do wonder, is there a challenge for the typically, and I'm, again, I'm saying these are generalizations because I actually feel like I don't necessarily fall into this gender stereotype. So I think I'm more sensitive to it, that there also needs to be a willingness to let go of some of the specifics of how something needs to get done when you hand it over to your partner of like hundred percent. There needs to be a willingness to say like maybe he or she has a way that's different than how I would do it, but like it's probably going to be fine. And like, I need to let go a little bit of saying like, I need you to do it. And it needs to be done in this exact manner for it to be correct and for there to be freedom within relationships. Of course, there are basics that like, you know, sweet Kate, yes, the children need lunch. <laughs> like that is a non-negotiable, but there being some things that it's like, you know, what happens if the birthday present isn't wrapped? Like, are we willing to say, you know what, at the end of the day? it's okay if you show up at the birthday party with an unwrapped gift and I'm not going to critique you for that. I'm going to say like that falls into the camp of like you do you boo boo and like, <laughs> uh, you know, and like you have your own way in space and that that's actually okay. Absolutely. And I, a lot of fair play is devoted to this concept of what I call a minimum standard of care. Okay. And what that, Ooh, and what that is, is um, so the CPE that's easy to understand, right? All the things that go into a certain task, right? If you're taking the trash out, it means the garbage liner goes back in, right? That's yeah. the accountability and trust. That's those vows we talked about. Not, yeah. not on your wedding day, but that have to change with the seasons. Yeah. But 
the frequency, how it gets done. These are all things we want to invest in. And the way you do that is not by saying, of course, garbage has to go out, right? Or it has to go out this way. It's ironically, it's a lot of the onboarding about fair play and into the system is telling each other your stories. And what Mm. I mean by that is Seth really understood CPE because he does, you know, he's all about context, not control with his employees. Yeah. He's like, you go, you own it. Um, so yeah. he understood, oh my God, if, if I'm taking on extracurricular sports and just taking the kids to the Little League field, I didn't realize that I really should be serving their kids, the kids for what sports they want to play, signing up on the AYSO or whatever portal. Making sure they have their physicals the because physical, that's going to be required. The and... Xeroxing them, ordering stuff on Amazon or borrowing it from a friend, returning it, what doesn't fit. Oh my God, an 85 person text chain to get our kids to practice, right? <laughs> All that conception and planning just to get the kids a Little League field was something that he's like, yeah. oh my God, it was an eye-opening experience. I can't believe I actually thought this was owning this card when there was so much conception and planning behind it. That was easy for him to understand. But when it came to garbage specifically, um, which became, there are those trigger cards, trigger points. Yeah. Yep, 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 um, yep. What I realized was he could understand the ownership of putting the liner back in and getting the bins out. It's more complicated here in LA than it was in New York, it turns out. <laughs> um, but what was happening was I was still his garbage shadow, Liz. I was still following him around, checking, opening the door underneath the sink to see if he would fall over it because he's tall. And well, maybe if he falls, he'll see there's a garbage liner there and take out the garbage. And I realized how I had to pause in the system and say, I missed a crucial step, which I often use with my mediation clients. And that is to get at the why. Before you mm. go to the what, the what of the garbage taking mm. out. And the why mm-hmm. was getting super vulnerable and saying to Seth, I'm your garbage shadow. I'm stalking you over garbage because ultimately I didn't have a garbage can growing up and you don't know this about mm. me, but we had a takeout bag that would sit on a knob and the garbage would come out and the floor would be sticky. We had cockroaches and water bugs everywhere. When my disabled brother needed to get water before bed and my mother was working late nights, I would close my eyes and turn on the lights and wait for the water bugs to scatter and the cockroaches to scatter so I could go into the refrigerator to pour some Brita filter of water. It was um, something I had to tell him. And so to me, a banana peel sticking out of the garbage is highly triggering. And then Seth was able to say, well, I don't really give a shit about garbage because I had a, a housekeeper growing up. So a typical dynamic would be, I would just take it back because say I valued it more. But then that would mean I ended up taking everything back. So the way we got to that was understanding that ultimately there should be a minimum standard of care that you both of you can agree to. Yeah. And that's why I don't like lower your standards, raise your standards. It feels very um, gendered and sort of stereotypical. Instead, you say, not saying you said that, I'm saying that's what people often say, you know, you have to lower your standards, raise your standards. So instead, this minimum standard of care said, how do you tell your stories about each and everything that has to get done? Invest in a garbage conversation so that you never have to talk about it again. Yeah. And that yeah. was it. Seth said, you know what? Garbage is not going to go out every minute because as much as I love you and that was your trigger, garbage is going to go out once a day. I promise you it'll happen. There can be accountability and trust there. Our minimum standard of care is that it goes out every day. But that was it. As long as you don't mention garbage ever again, Eve. And that was, and that, and yeah. that became our minimum standard of care that Seth understood Mm -hmm. the CPE of what it meant to own garbage, but that our minimum standard of care was it goes out once a day. Those conversations don't happen overnight. We have to invest in them the same way we invest in toilet paper, hand sanitizer, meditation, exercise. 
Yeah. Communication over these issues are is a practice. A practice. Yeah. And and so many of us look at it as a one and done conversation. That's why we don't come back to the table. Yeah. So I guess what I will end with is in if you feel like this is overwhelming to start thinking about the what of who does what in your home, start with the why. Start telling each other your yeah. stories. I love so that. Go on the Fair Play website. We have the cards, the fairplaylife.com. We have the cards there. Pick one. Pick one of the whole deck and just start asking each other about your stories. What were the extracurricular sports stories you had growing up? That's so good. You no, know, and just start telling each other your stories because that's where our humanity lies and that's where you can start realizing there's value. And the- it's such an intimacy builder. You're not entering the conversation like little worker bees being like, who's right. doing the most work? It's like no one wants to live in a marriage or a partnership where it's like you're with an unpaid employee who's just like, <laughs> right. you know, that you're checking up on. But instead, like, I want to do this because I love you. I love our family. I understand this story. And I think I've seen in my own marriage and what I love about just having the conversation is I find that our marriage is filled with so much more joy and grace when there's just the acknowledgement. I think a lot of resentment can build up. It's like, I'm not resentful because I'm doing the thing. I'm resentful because I'm doing the thing. And you don't even know that this thing exists Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's not being acknowledged and it's not being appreciated. And I so often find that when there's just a consciousness of like, we both, and it happens to my husband too. I know that there are things that he does that are invisible to me that I can't acknowledge because I'm like, I don't even know that that's like a thing and you're doing it behind the scenes. And so anything that can help us go like, whoa, I see that. And I fully acknowledge the invisible work that goes into that and just gratitude of just like, I'm so grateful that you do that for our family, that even that for us has been, I think gratitude and acknowledgement goes a really long way in creating like a healthy partnership of just like, I see you. Thank you for doing that can make the work so much more joyful when it's like, okay, I'm doing this as a part of our family and that's being seen and acknowledged and that feels really, really good. And now I want to keep going and I want to keep participating in this way versus just feeling so unseen and unknown and invisible in the ways in which we're trying to show up for our families and our partners. Well, I will say that I was able to predict because of the fact that I'm at a saturation point, which is what sociologists call it when you interview so much on one issue, Mm. that you were in a self-actualized relationship because of just the way you I, I see you present in the world. Again, I don't know you um, until today, which is so great to get to know you, but through even your podcast and what I call your unicorn space, this idea that mm. you are actively pursuing and are engaged in your own life. Um, often that is a the prerequisite of somebody who has caregiving roles, whether they're kids or others, is being in a partnership that has fairness. Mm. And so I, I didn't know that about you, um, mm. but it's very easy to understand that that would be your dynamic. I would have predicted that um, in the beginning of our talk. Wow. Well, I kind of feel like I just got a free, um, (laughs) I feel like I kind of just got a free diagnosis or analysis. I love this podcast. I get to make awesome friends. I get to learn so much. I get free diagnoses. Um, But no, No, I really- Continue it. Continue it. You know, again, even though some of the times this work can feel like unpaid labor, you know, you sharing yourself with the world in this way is very um, powerful. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Eve. I appreciate that so much. And I can just genuinely say, speaking of gratitude, thank you. Thank you for leaning into this. Thank you for doing the research. Thank you for turning your own, you know, the, the parts of trauma in your childhood and channeling your pen stabbing 
your vagina <laughs> rage into something that didn't just make your life and your marriage better, but really thinking about how does that apply and how can I serve others in that? And it's so, so evident in your work. And this is such an important issue. And I believe that there are a lot of women and men that are going to be brought more fully to life um, because of the work that you're doing. So I'm just so grateful. So please keep going. And thank I'm you. Thank you. And I will I say that um, the last thing I want to end on is that regardless of your family structure, that, that this is an issue that even affects, you know, it affects LGBTQIA couples as well. Yeah. It affects single mothers as well, because this is about how we value care in our society. And so what I will end with is my moonshot is that, you know, we as a society, we value an hour holding our child's hand in the pediatrician's office as much as we ultimately value an hour in the boardroom. So I will ask us all, do we believe that? And if not, um, how can we go to a society in a world where that actually that statement is true? I literally have goosebumps right now. Look at my arms. <laughs> Look at the hair standing up. I love that line. And I'm going to hold on to that. That's so good. Eve, thank you so much. You're brilliant. I appreciate your work in the world. And thank you for giving an hour of your precious time to be with us and our community on the Plucking Up Pod. Thank you, Liz. This podcast was made possible in part by my amazing producers at Human Group Media. For updates and announcements about the show, you can visit lizbohannon.co or follow me and message me. I love hearing from you all on Instagram. I'm at lizbohannon and you can connect with my producers. They're at Human Group Media on Instagram as well or human underscore media on Twitter. All right, that's all. We'll catch you in the next episode. And until then, stay plucky. Stay plucky.